Most stories have a hero and a villain, the good guy and the bad guy, and the story revolves around their relationship. And as we look at Easter, we tend to uh, look at only the hero, Jesus. And we would say, rightly so, Easter is a wonderful story of sacrificial love, Jesus giving up his life as a sacrifice for our sins. But we tend to ignore the villain, Judas. He gets just a passing glance, the bad guy that betrayed his master. But in any story, we learn a lot about the hero by looking at the villain, at the bad guy. And so that's what I want to do this morning. I, and I just hope that the story of Judas will just leave you with a greater appreciation of Jesus' grace, mercy, and love. It's in the story of Judas that we get a glimpse of how great is the love of Jesus. Judas Iscariot, one of the chosen 12, chosen to be a rab by a rabbi, was a high honor. In their society, it was one of the highest of honors. It was always a testament to the strong confidence that the rabbi had in you. To follow the rabbi was to give your life to the rabbi. It was a commitment that you were going to become like the rabbi in all things. And it was through this that Judas was called. And I believe he began well. This was Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one of God, the Christ. And the prevailing belief was that the Messiah would lead Israel to victory over their enemies, propel Israel to greatness, and of course the Messiah's disciples would be right there at the top with him in the highest places in the coming world order. And so in Judas's mind to be chosen, that was beyond belief. Of course, we know that God the Father had Judas chosen for a different role. He was chosen by God the Father to betray Jesus to death. And so instead of being a hero, he would become the bad guy. But did Jesus know this when he chose Judas? We have no indication that he did. And at first, there's no outward indication that Judas was any different than any of the rest of the 12 disciples, or the other 11 disciples. He followed Jesus. He was taught by Jesus. He went out on their trips, preaching the good news of the kingdom and to work miracles. He's even a trusted member of the group. He's made the group treasurer. He handles all their finances. Now, why was he chosen? Was he good with finances? Or was it because they saw him as a most trustworthy person? But underneath, there's a flaw in Judas's life that would derail him. And that was the love of money. 1 Timothy in chapter 6 says, People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And that's exactly what was going to happen in Judas's life. The love of money would end up taking him away from the faith and pierce himself with grief. Matthew 6, Jesus said that no one can serve two masters. Either you're going to hate the one and love the other one, so you can't serve money and you can't serve God. 
Either you're going to go the way of loving money or you're going to go the way of loving God, but you aren't going to do both. It's either pursue money or pursue God. And Judas, somewhere along the way, began to pursue money. He begins to pilfer from the group funds. A little here, just a little there, likely in small amounts so that no one would catch on. But we begin to see an attitude change in Judas. And in John 12, six days before the Passover, they have all arrived in Bethany. Uh, they go to Lazarus' house. Uh, there the uh, dinner is being created in Jesus' honor. And uh, Mary, while they're there, she takes a pint of Pirnard. It's worth about a year's wages. And she pours it on Jesus' feet and wipes his feet with her hair. And Judas's response was to that was he objected to it and he says, why wasn't this sold? That's worth a year's wages. Think of all the poor that that could have helped. But it says he had an ulterior motive. He wasn't concerned about the poor. He was only thinking of how much money he could pilfer out of that year's wages. You see, by this time, money is consuming his thinking. His heart is becoming hardened. He gives no thought to the wonderful act of worship performed by Mary. Nor is he concerned about the poor. He just sees the lost opportunity to enrich himself. And so a shift has happened. He still outwardly would have professed love and obedience to Jesus. But inwardly in the secret places of his heart. He's more concerned about money. And perhaps by this time he's tired of poverty. Jesus was a poor traveling rabbi, living dependent on the generosity of others. He didn't accumulate money. And as they go through these three and a half years and their expectation is Jesus is going to lead them into power and wealth, he's not doing any of that. Also through this three and a half years, uh, we see that Satan has begun to influence Judas more and more. In John 6, there's a point there where as many of his disciples realized that Jesus wasn't going to lead them into power and wealth, it says that they turned back and no longer followed him. And so Jesus turns to the 12 and he says, are you going to leave too? You want to leave? And in answer, Peter gives a wonderful declaration of who Jesus is. And he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and we know that you're the Holy One of God. And then Jesus responds and he says, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? And yet one of you is the devil. And it says he met Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him. So somewhere along the line, Jesus has come to realize that Judas is going to betray him. I personally chose you 12, but Judas has already been influenced by the devil, and Jesus knows it. And from this time on, Satan is influencing Judas, and that's what happens when we choose the things of this world over Jesus. More and more, we become influenced by Satan. Wrong choices become a pattern. The pattern becomes the life, who the person is. Now, there are some people who think that Judas had no choice in this, that, well, God needed someone to betray him. So he chose Judas, and Judas had to fulfill his destiny. 
And that's simply not true. Here we see an interplay of God's foreknowledge and God's sovereignty and Judas's free will, his ability to make his own choices. And God knew that Judas would betray Jesus. And God made sure that Judas was chosen as one of the 12. But all along, Judas is making the choices based on his own free will. God in his sovereignty simply uses the choices that, say, uh, that Judas was making to further God's plans. Eventually, greed seems to take over. We're not told his motives other than money. That's the, what the Bible lists as his motive was money. Some think that Judas became disillusioned with Jesus, saw where this was going, and he simply decided that he was going to gain as much as he could out of it. Other people think that Judas' motive was that he was trying to force Jesus' hands, put him in a tough situation where he has to declare himself. But we don't know his motives, but we do, are told that Satan is influencing him. And so at this point, Judas goes to religious leaders seeking to make a deal with them. He knows the religious leaders want to kill Jesus. Jesus has exposed the religious leaders over and over, showing them for the religious hypocrites that they really are. The crowds love Jesus, but the leaders hate him. But they're afraid that if they arrest him during the daytime, the crowds will riot. So they're looking for that opportunity to catch Jesus alone, to arrest him privately. And so they're delighted when, Jesus, uh, when Judas comes. And they make that deal for Judas to deliver him privately at nighttime. They needed to have a pseudo-legal trial, one that would satisfy the Romans, but they needed to get it done before the crowds catch on. And so they're looking to arrest Jesus in the evening when the crowds are gone and have that happen all overnight and crucify him in the morning. And so Judas, knowing this, he comes to them and he says, what's it worth to you? And their answer was, it's worth 30 pieces of silver. Now, actually, Judas sold out Jesus pretty cheaply. Now, in that day, their pieces of silver, depending on which part of the world they came from, would vary a little bit, but the average was about 14 grams. A week ago, a piece of silver, 14 grams on the Canadian market, was worth $435.96. In Jesus' day, 30 pieces of silver was worth about six weeks' wages. Not very much. If you take the average Canadian income for 2022, six weeks of wages comes to $6,842.30. So Judas sold out Jesus for less than $7,000. Now this happened seven days, or uh, just two days before the Passover. Uh, Jesus declares that his disciples at the Passover, he's going to be handed over and he's going to be crucified. After he makes that declaration, they go to the house of Simon the leper. Uh, again, he's uh, anointed. It doesn't name the woman this time, but it says a woman comes with expensive per perfume and uh, she pours it on his head instead of his feet this time. And again, there's that indignation by the disciples, and I believe it was probably led by Judas. And Jesus gives them actually a public rebuke for this then. Because she has done a wonderful act of worship, and they're rebuking her. You see, Judas' heart is so consumed with money, he can't see the act of worship 
at this point anymore. And I wonder, did he resent the public rebuke because it was after this rebuke that it says he then left and he went and made the deal with the priests. From there on, uh, Jesus takes the disciples into an early Passover celebration and he goes to the upper room with his disciples and there we have the wonderful words recorded in John 13. In verse 1, it says, he was just before the Passover feast, Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. And we know that story of how he got down on his feet and he washed their feet. But it says, just be, inter, puts it in just there, just into this story. It says, the devil had already prompted Judas to betray him. And Jesus knows this. And Jesus gets down on his knees and he washes the feet of Judas. Knowing that he'd betray him. No wonder John says Jesus showed the full extent of his love. Would I be able to get on my knees and wash the feet of the guy I knew was going to betray me? As they begin to eat, Jesus takes the ancient Passover ritual. He gives a new meaning, which we today call communion or the Lord's table. And he took the bread and he said, this represents my body, which is going to be broken for you during the crucifixion. He took the wine and he said, this represents my blood, which is going to be shed as I die. And he finishes giving that new meaning to that. And they have partaken of the bread and the wine. And then he says, I tell you the truth, that one of you is going to betray me. Now, combining the different passages, uh, it just says that they were very sad. And they began to say to him, well, you, surely not me, Lord. I wouldn't do that. And even Judas was sitting there saying, surely not I, Lord, even though he knew that he'd already betrayed him. And Jesus takes a piece of bread and he dips it into the gravy and he hands it to Judas. And he says, yes, it's you. And Judas takes that bread and he eats it. Now in their culture, to share bread and then to betray your host, that's the highest level of treachery. In their culture, if you give bread and you share, uh, ate the bread, you would protect that person at all costs. And interspersed in that, Jesus just, again, he brings out, he's, he's told, just told Judas, you're the one, I know you're the one, and he hands him the bread, and Judas takes it anyways. And he gives Judas that warning. He says, woe to the person who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better if he had not been born. For Judas to accept that bread, Jesus was saying, you're my friend. Jesus was accepting the friendship. It gives us a glimpse into his treachery and how far he had fallen. But it also gives us a glimpse into Jesus. That he could take that bread and give it and say, you're my friend. Psalm 41.9 prophesied about this. It said, even my, so it's talking about Jesus. 
even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread has turned against me. So even the prophecies say that Jesus considered Judas his friend. It says that Jesus considered Judas someone whom he had trusted. And they had shared bread together. And yet Judas turned. Verse 27, it says, As soon as Judas took that bread and he ate it, Satan entered into him. And at this point, all along, Jesus has been giving Judas that chance to turn back, to change. But Judas has made up his mind. And so Jesus says, okay, what you're going to do, go and do it quickly. And so Judas leaves at that point. He goes out, meets his religious leaders. He knows where Jesus is going after the meal. Uh, Jesus, after Judas is gone, he gives his final teachings to his disciples. He prays for them, and then they go out to the garden in the Mount of Olives. And there Judas brings the mob to kill him. And so while he's speaking to his disciples there in the garden, Judas arrives with that mob. And he'd already made an arrangement with them that you'll know the one to arrest because I'll go up to him and I'll give him a kiss. And he went up and he said, greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And again, you see the, the treachery to call someone your rabbi was to say, I am in complete submission to you. And he goes up, greetings, rabbi, and he kisses him. But I just find it so interesting, Jesus' response. Friend, friend, do what you came for. He also asked this question. He said, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Do you catch the graciousness of Jesus? Do you catch his love? Even at this point, he's still loving. And so the mob takes Jesus. Judas watches them take Jesus away, and suddenly it hits home to him the enormity of what he has done. He's betrayed an innocent man, the Christ, and Judas is overcome with remorse. And Paul tells us later, he says there's a worldly sorrow that leads to death and there's a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Both is remorse, both is sorrow. But one doesn't bring any change. The other one leads the person to repentance. And sadly, Judas' sorrow and remorse does not lead him to repentance. Instead, it led him to his death. And so early in the morning, as they take Jesus away, they take him before Pilate and Judas realizes that that, hey, there is no hope. Uh, he isn't going to be declared innocent. He's going to die. It says that he was seized with remorse. He took the silver pieces, of si silver, 30 th silver coins. He took them back to the chief priests. And he said, I have sinned for a betrayed innocent blood. And he just receives that callous response. Say, well, what's that to us? That's your responsibility. And so he threw the money at their feet in the temple. And he went away, it says, and he hanged himself. Acts chapter 1, uh, the disciples give a little bit different story here. It says that with reward that uh, he got for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language the field of blood. 
And those two accounts seem to contradict each other. One says he committed suicide by hanging himself. One says he committed suicide by falling in his intestine spilled out. Now, both will be true. We just don't have all the details. You're getting the same story told from two different perspectives. And so here are some possibilities people uh, present for us. One was he hung himself and he was left there hanging until his body bloated and rotted and fell and burst open. The second one is uh, the traditional spot. We don't know for, for sure where the field was, but the traditional spot has a cliff at the edge. And that he tied a rope to a tree or something up there and he flung himself off and breaking the rope and when he hit the bottom, uh, he burst, his body burst open. The third one is that he flung himself down on a sharpened pole, some sharpened object. And we know from history, suicide was sometimes done by falling on the sharp point of something. We see some examples of this. Uh, King Saul killed himself that way. Uh, in battles, he committed suicide. Uh, he took his sword and he just fell down on it, up through his stomach into his, his heart and his lungs. Another example, we have Haman in the book of Esther built a gallows 75 feet high to hang Mordecai on and that whole story got turned around and Haman got hung on there. But uh, tradition tells us this wasn't a gallows as we think of it, hung by the neck, that the top was a sharpened pole and a sharp object and in through the stomach, up through the chest cavity and it leaves a person hanging there. And so that did happen. Uh, your Bible's translated, uh, some of them translated Haman was impaled on the gallows. Uh, so the word hanging in the Bible, same word can be used to describe different ways of uh, hanging. So we really cannot know. But his death was final. He went to his final place. And as Jesus said of him, it would have been better for him that he had never been born. Now again, uh, the disciples said later that he bought the field. Uh, actually, what we have recorded in another passage was actually the chief priest bought it in his name. So it was his money, his 30 pieces of silver. They didn't want to put it in the temple treasury because they called it blood money. And so they took it and they bought the field. And they made it a burial place for foreigners. Now, as we look at that whole story, it's the story of a villain who's the backdrop for the story of Jesus. And through the whole story, we just see the graciousness of, and love of Jesus. He chose Judas. He empowered Judas to preach and to do miracles. He gave Judas all the privileges and advantages that the rest of the disciples had. He gave Judas the position of trust as treasurer of the group. He taught Judas. He lived with Judas. He laughed with Judas. He ate with Judas. He had a relationship with Judas to the point that he calls him friend. He had the same relationship all the other disciples had. And as Judas's heart begins to drift away, Jesus gently lets Judas know that he knows what's happening in Judas's heart. 
And he's giving Judas the opportunity to repent and to change. As they come down to the final act of betrayal, he shows the full extent of his love by getting on his knees and washing Judas' feet. And then finally at the meal, he even offers the bread of friendship and calls him friend. And he lets Judas know that he knows what's happening. He's given Judas a chance to repent, to change. He's warning him that if you go through with what you're planning, it would be better for you that you weren't born. And when Judas brings the mob, he receives him graciously. He accepts the kiss, and he only gently questions him, are you going to betray me with a kiss? He's given Judas another chance to think through his actions. And I just see a story of love and grace that Jesus is showing to Judas through the complete story. And here's my belief. Judas is loved by Jesus perfectly, just as he loves everyone. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And so what that verse is telling us, he loves everyone. And that included Judas. And so in the story, I see the patience of Jesus. He would have loved to see Judas come to repentance. But Judas makes the wrong choices, and he doesn't come to repentance. So God, in his sovereignty, uses Judas to bring about the crucifixion. But meanwhile, all along, Jesus is showing Judas love, giving him a chance to change right through to the end. And Judas, in his remorse chose to commit suicide instead of repenting. Now, I want to say for Judas, he didn't understand yet the final outcome. He didn't understand that Jesus on the third day would rise from the dead. And I just think if only Judas had hung on, if only he could have seen the risen Lord and repented, but he didn't wait. And he didn't see and understand hope. He could only see what he had done. He had helped kill the Son of God. But this morning, you are so much better. You know that Jesus rose from the dead. No matter your history, no matter what you've done, the lesson we learn from Judas is that Jesus loves you. If Jesus could love Jesus, uh, Judas, who would betray him to death, then does he not love you? As Jesus died on the cross, two thieves were on each, one on each side of him. The one couldn't see any hope in Jesus. He couldn't understand the love of Jesus. But the other one looked at him and he saw hope and he cried out, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus' instant response was, Today you will be with me in paradise. That's the love of Jesus. He loves everyone, and if that person is quick or is willing to repent, Jesus is quick to accept and to forgive the person who repents. And so this is what the story of Judas does for us. It highlights the love of Jesus. It highlights the hope that there is in Jesus. So here's my last question. If Jesus loved Judas like that, then doesn't he love you? I'd like you to go this week and just think about that question. 
We'll ask the ushers to come forward, please.